My guest this week is one of my favorite stand-up comedians of all time. Besides being a great comic, he's also a great comedy writer, writing for Saturday Night Live for over seven years and earning an Emmy. He also wrote for The Drew Carey Show, The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, The Showbiz Show with David Spade, D.L. Ugly Breaks the News, and Muppets Christmas Letters to Santa. Ladies and gentlemen, you think. Wow, Ian, you know my bio better than I do. That's incredible. So, you were born in early 60s. So, Saturday Night Live premiered when you were like 14 or 15 years old. Something like that. Did you watch it then? I did. In fact, I not only watched it, it was on so late that I listened to it on the radio because in Indiana, we had a local NBC affiliate that I could tune into on my radio. So I specifically remember once lying in bed and hearing Chevy Chase on Weekend Update do the joke about Generalissimo Franco has, is reportedly remaining dead. Right. And even at that moment, I, I was thinking, this is not the type of comedy I'm used to hearing or mm-hmm. watching, and I love this. Okay. When did you start uh, doing stand-up? In the early 80s, when I was at NYU, I dabbled as much as a college student could. Um, But then I moved to Los Angeles after college and um, started doing it, you know, as a profession fairly quickly. And you're originally from Indiana, correct? Yes. And your parents are both musical. My dad was musical. Dad was musical. He was a saxophone and clarinetist, but most importantly, he was a talented composer on the side of his law practice. And he actually has written many um, Jewish holiday songs that some have been recorded and people seem to really dig. Cool. And um, I just, when I was a kid, like I would watch any stand up that was on TV. So I saw you on Improv Tonight and Andy's Evening at the Improv. Um, MTV's Half Hour Comedy Hour. So I would like to ask you, what is the importance of the first base coach? So Ian, according to the New York Times, who did a story on first base coaches and included me, they interviewed some first base coaches about my bit, and they said that I pretty much got it right. That it's a useless position other than to offer encouragement and emotional support to the players on base. Right. But that no professional major league athlete needs a first base coach to tell him what to do. In fact, I think it was um, Ken Brett, the late Ken Brett, you know, brother mm-hmm. of George Brett, who was himself a great major league pitcher. We were speaking once and he told me the typical conversation would be, hey man, Remember, uh, one out, so go to second when you can. <laughs> and that's the, that's as profound an advice a first base coach would give the runner. So if Bobby Bonilla was batting, the first base coach would say, Come on, Bobo. <laughs> you you got to wonder if Bonilla, I hope that he's been haunted by my routine and that as he sits doing nothing with his life and once a year collects a million dollars from the Mets, even though he sucked on their team, 
I hope that people bring up my routine to him. Well, I used to do it at Chase Stadium. I love it. Um, and you're in you're in Los Angeles, so it's one o'clock here. What time is it there? Ian? Ian, it's a podcast there. What is that? A pot roast here, huh? Oh, you're Ian there. You're Ian Fleming here. Yes, you know that that bit. Even though I say it's my dad, Ian, it actually came from my uncle Sid, who lived in Ohio. So basically, it was, it's his voice, but it's my dad's attitude. I combined the two because in real life, my dad couldn't get time zones correctly. One time, I was performing in Vegas, and another comedian and I was supposed to meet my parents for lunch, and we showed up to the restaurant. And my dad seemed a little annoyed, and he's like, um, you guys are two hours late. I said, no, we're not, Dad. You forgot to change your time zone. And my friend thought we were doing a bit. He goes, this cannot be happening. This is actually real. Your father really doesn't get time zones? I said, there you go. The one, what, the one I, I know the punchline is hysterical, but I never remember what the, what the joke was. Is you're doing Henny Young Life and you go, take my wife, for example. So the setup is that I saw Henny Youngman perform and he seemed a little senile. Okay, that's what I figured. That was the bit, right? So in the construction of my Vidian, all his punchlines, they weren't funny. He was just stating the truth. So okay. you go, my wife, she steps on a scale. She weighs 300 pounds. <laughs> right. I went to the doctor. I said, Doc, my arm hurts. He said, let me give you an x-ray. Right. So it was a very, I love the fact that you appreciate that bit because only comedy connoisseurs understood that routine. It's like one of my favorite bits, but I always tuned it in before you gave up the setup. But I figured, oh, it's got to be saying that this guy is real, that Henny Youngman's really old. Exactly. Which, which he was, so that's why... As a bit, it felt it felt organic and true, right? Yeah, I also liked. Um, I think you worked with them. Uh, Sloven and Allen did a who's on first, but they used the actual ball players. And were they writers with you on uh, SNL? They they came after me. Oh, they were after you. They were, but you know what? I was at Saturday Night Live when Norm Macdonald did his brilliant bit about um, Lou Gehrig's. I was going to ask you if you were if you were there, or I mean, if you wrote that with them, or he wrote that himself. Truth be told, he wrote that. Because I was waiting my life for somebody to make to say, "How's he lucky? He's going to be underground next year, and they'll be playing a doubleheader in Cleveland." Exactly. Do you remember? And I used to do a bit in my stand-up about a FDR was famous for saying, "The only thing we have to fear is fear itself." We have a couple more things to fear, like polio, for example. Oh, I used to say, "And stairs." And stairs, nice. I like it. I'm a social studies teacher. I don't do that joke in front of the kids, obviously. That's not. Of course. I did a joke actually about. I used to do stand up, but I used to do a joke about for first base coach. This is an actual guy though. His first name is Rusty, and his last name is K U N T Z. Yes, I remember him. So I would say Rusty Kuntz. Uh, that's the original title of the Golden Girls. <laughs> that's good stuff. And I somebody gave me an autographed card. Uh, an autograph for Rusty Kuntz baseball card. Of Rusty, yeah. I, I do remember him. It's Kuntz, but yeah, Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. The thing, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. 
That was your screen debut. Yeah, I I got my my SAG card from that little trivia fact. Ian, that film was produced by the guy who cast me. He went on to produce Reservoir Dogs. He's one of the main producers of Reservoir Dogs. Wow! But he he gave me my acting start by casting me as Jeff the Reporter in Silent Night and Deadly Night Part Four. Richard Gladstein. That's the dude. He was a, strangely enough, a colleague of Harvey Weinstein at Miramax, which is how he did Reservoir Dogs. Mm. But um, he produced Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Four. Gave me my big break. And then the next year, you worked with one of my top three favorite comedians of all time. You're in the top ten, but Rodney Dangerfield, the greatest, one of the thrills of my career in life to get to be picked by Rodney to do his final young comedian special on HBO. The whole process took like maybe two months. He came to see me in LA three times at clubs before choosing me. Then I walked off stage. He goes, Hey kid, you got it. You know what I'm saying? You're going to do the special. And um, we became friends. And obviously I, I think there's been no greater American stand-up comic than Rodney. Hey, and who came up with the bit of him trying to get you, but you're having lunch at the pool with Linda Gray and Corbin Burnson? He came up with that because I was not asked to contribute to, even though I became a sketch writer. Back then, I was not a sketch writer. So that was a Rodney thing. And he, he got... Um, uh, Corbin Burnson, right? Right. And Linda Gray, who was a right. star on Dallas. And so they played themselves. So that was cool that I hung out with them all day. We shot it at Merv Griffin's Beverly Hilton Hotel, oh. you know, where the Golden Globes are mm. done. Yeah. And that probably made you be seen by the largest audience up to that time. At the time, that's true. You know, I feel like, sadly, I missed the cusp of those HBO Young Comedian specials, the ones previous to me, seemed to launch every career of every comic they were uh, showcasing. By the time I did mine, which is, I think, 1994, stand-up was already getting more popular, right? Mm-hmm. With you think, the improv and stuff. So it wasn't as unique a show. So I feel like I just missed the timing on that. But it was still incredible to work with Rodney and be on it. Yeah. And did you see him in the robe? Because he had me meet him at his, he lived at the Beverly Hilton where we shot my pool scene. And um, so he said to come to his room, like the legend always says, he was in his bathrobe nude. Yep. And he just used to spend hours that way. And he, he gave me great advice. And I said, so Rodney, what should I do career-wise, like once the special airs? He goes, here's the deal, man. After you do my special, go to HBO, tell them you want your one hour, your own one hour special. If they say no, fuck them. <laughs> that was his advice. It's good advice. I think so. And I saw you um, on uh, Evening Improv tonight, which was not Evening at the Improv, but it was like a different one. And it was you, Rich Hall, and Dennis Wolfberg. 
and I had you on, and I had Rich Hall on. So I'm not going to get Dennis though. That's pretty cool. I think that they, with that format, did they maybe tape us separately and then edit us onto the same show? I think they did. Most of them, if you don't remember them being there. Yeah, because I, I definitely work with Rich Hall, and I'm friendly with him. Not Dennis Wolfbrook. I, Den, I know who Dennis is and know his stand-up a bit, but to my knowledge, we never worked together. Certainly didn't tape a TV show together. So I think that's what Improv Tonight, they would do an amalgam of stand-ups who right. they thought worked well in one episode together. You came out with like a mullet and you said, yeah, I know I look like the kid Barry Manilow's never going to have. Who I said that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. It was like, a, I think it was like, I'm Barry Manilow test tube. Barry Manilow's mm. test tube baby was right. the line. Right. So then you started uh, doing stand-up a lot with David Spade. Um, yeah, so David Spade and I became friends at the Hollywood Improv. We just had, we saw the world similarly. We had the same sarcastic bent. So we started hanging out, writing stuff together. We would perform in town together. And uh, that, you know, forged a great professional relationship. So while he was, when he got Saturday Night Live and he started doing the Hollywood Minute, you would send him jokes? Exactly. And this is, you know, back in the day when, I don't even know if we used fax machines, but yes, I would send him jokes. A lot of them got on. Um, and he was kind enough to tell Lorne Michaels about me, which ultimately ended up with me getting on the show. Right. So you came on in the 95-96 season, and that was after the season before, which was, disaster, which was disastrous. I remember that was my senior year in high school. So they always say, you'll always remember the cast that was on your senior year in high school. And I'm like, yeah. Was there a yeah, pressure... Was there a pressure on you guys because this might have been it? Yes, there definitely was that pressure. For the first time in Lorne Michaels' career, to my knowledge, he had NBC breathing down his neck. Like, Lauren Littlefield was giving advice of what to do with the show. and So it was a strange time to be there. But it was also very exciting because a lot of the writers and cast were new. And so we were just take the attitude, let's go for it. Let's just write what we think is funny and let the chips fall. And it did take, I'd say about a half a season before we really started clicking and people started to consistently think the show was funny again. It took a long time. I think when Tom Hanks hosted the second, the second year, the premiere, people were like, yeah. oh, if Tom Hanks is willing to come back. I think they, and when Jim Carrey hosted the season finale. Finale. You're right. right. That finale with Soundgarden was the musical guest. Yes. And um, that was a great show. And I wrote his monologue. Oh, that okay. Show. Yeah, which was a good one. And then the Tom Hanks show you mentioned, it broke my heart. I had a sketch cut, deservedly so. It was one of the things where I was still pretty inexperienced, and I wrote a sketch that took place in Italy at an Italian restaurant, Ian, where... Jim Brewer and Tom Hanks spoke no English. So they were basically just speaking Italian gibberish. It was that they got into a huge fight in front of the American tourist customers who were like Will Ferrell and his wife, Sherry O'Terry. So it was a funny premise with a lot of physical action of the two Italian guys beating the crap out of each other. But the problem is 
I didn't court. I didn't choreograph the sketch. Meaning, when the fight scene started, like I didn't know where they should go and what to do. So when we rehearsed it, it was a train wreck. Right. And Tom Hanks was nice enough to spend extra time doing the blocking, but still, we never really figured out exactly right. how to get from beat to beat. So it got cut. So when you were first hired, they did they use it primarily on Spade in America? Yes. They first, that was my job to write Spade in America, which I helped create that segment. But then, you know, David left. Right. You might remember he left mid-season. So I was scared, but they said, well, you seem like you're doing well. Why don't you stay out the year? And of course, I focused on, I wrote more monologues than any staff writer. That became my thing. They could rely on me for the monologues with the guest hosts. And I also, I remember my first breakout sketch without Spade was um, Aussie Girls. Do you remember that sketch, Ian? Where oh my God, Elma yes. Pearson, Elma Pearson was a phone sex line for girls from Australia. But the joke was that they spoke with such a thick Australian accent. It's not sexy. Gibberish, right. It wasn't sexy at all. So that was my sketch and that killed. Oh yeah, and then you, you did it two more times. Did, uh, did you write I both did, of those? I did Long Island Girls. Yes. I'm from Long Island, Which, I know. Yeah, of course. You were, do you remember who hosted that? That was Alec Baldwin. Right, and then you did yes. one with uh, Sting. was the last one. Sting, well, Sting, no, Sting was in Aussie Girls playing a sort of gay British biker in leather. Okay, right. He was in that one. But um, the other one we did was Detroit Girls. No, Lansing Girls, Lansing, Lan Michigan, yeah. had a horrible Lansing, Michigan accent. Yeah. And that was done with um, uh, Boralski. Oh, Christine Boransky. Christine Boralski, yeah. yeah. She hosted it. Yeah, I remember that. So those were the three. Did you, did you write the uh, Spade in America where uh, the, people from the people from Friends came on? Yes, I did. I think it was, wasn't it just, just Jennifer oh, Aniston? Oh, it was just Jennifer Aniston. And she said, do you know how much pressure I have to sit in here and be good on a television show that everybody, that 50 million people watch every week? And Spade's like, no. <laughs> I do remember that. And do, do you, I also wrote, what confused me was that same year, I wrote David Schwimmer's monologue when he hosted. Oh, I love that I one. Did, love that one? Where it was Jennifer Aniston, Lisa Kudrow, and then cameos by Gary Coleman, Barry Williams from Brady Bunch, JJ Jimmy Walker. It was loaded with hilarious cameos. That's my, my favorite monologue from that season. Thank you. That was a good one. Did you write the El McPherson monologue that you're, that you're yes. in? I didn't know if you wrote it or Fred Wolf because... No, I wrote it and then Fred Wolf, they decided to cast me in it. I didn't really want to be in my own monologue. But um, Fred convinced Lorne Michaels that I'd be great as the uh, guy yeah, sitting in the crowd. Yeah, but we had Fred do that walk-on. That yeah. was a really funny one, too. Yeah. Um, then you work with Normalot. Did you do uh, his character of Stan Hooper? Larry King. Larry King. Oh. I did. I did Larry King's. Yeah, I tried to write. I tried to write one because I knew that you did that. I was like, of all the elements on the periodic table, probably the most beloved is cobalt. And I, I like how you got the phone, the format right of saying 
probably the most beloved because that's exactly what Larry would do. Remember, I had him go, of all the great black golfers, Tiger Woods has got to be one of the seven or eight greatest. <laughs> never make a definitive statement. Never, don't even say Tiger's the greatest black golfer. He's only one of the seven or eight. That's Larry's thing is take no risks at all on having an opinion. Um, another one, uh, one of my favorite ones is, of all the movies to see this year, if you can only see one, it's Gattaca. <laughs> and do you remember my follow-up to that a year later, Ian, was, of all the movies to see this year, the must-see is Dante's Peak. <laughs> yeah, I didn't remember. Michael Jordan is a better basketball player than he is a baseball player. Yes. And then the normal do that. I watched one. And normal do that face. Right. The pause. I, I watched one recently, and um, I had forgotten that I had written that, um, is anyone else sick and tired of Nelson Mandela? And the <laughs> crowd just was, like, shocked by that. And you're, you're also famous for, look, kids, a falling star, make a wish. Eddie Murphy. Infamous. I don't know if Spade will ever recover from that. It was brutal. If I was him, I would. When Eddie called, and I would went Vampire in Brooklyn and hung up. <laughs> well, my understanding is after years and years of vitriol and being estranged from each other, Eddie finally accepted his apology. Not that they were ever buddies anyway, but Eddie was so angry for so many years. But I think he finally let it go, which is good. It was just a joke, for God's sake. He made fun of Garrett. Totally. So, it's fair. I, I agree with you. So then, when you you started you started working a lot with um, Tracy Morgan. I did. I wrote his first bit, um, the commercial Caribbean Essence Bath Oil, where he plays this. Uh, you know, white women are taking bubble baths and they pour in the magical solution and Tracy emerges from the suds of the bubbles and carries them off into a Jamaican sunset. Right. So that was the, one of Tracy's first bits. I think another great thing we did with Tracy was, um, you remember where he and Samuel L. Jackson played a couple living in the housing projects of the Bronx? Will Ferrell awarded them the Publishers Clearinghouse special stake in the middle of the ghetto. And so they, of course, didn't even believe that it was for real. They were suspicious of this white guy showing up to their house. They had a vicious Rottweiler barking the whole time. It was a cool sketch. Yes, I remember that one. See, this is my level of uh, OCD. That was February of 1998, and the musical guest was Ben Folds 5. Ian, that is impressive. I know the February 98 thing, I can kind of see why you know that, because it was around the time of the Super Bowl, which is why they were doing Publishers Clearinghouse. I couldn't have told you the year. I cer certainly couldn't have told you that the musical guest was Ben Folds 5. That's impressive. Yeah, that's just, you know, not having a life does that. You know, it's good. What was it like when um, Chris Farley came back in 97 to host? Really bittersweet. And for me, sad because I was friendly with Farley through Spade, right? Because they were buddy-buddy. And Farley and I got along great. And he he used to tell David to all the time, he goes, Fink's so much funnier than you, Spade. And so it was this very funny 
dynamic between the three of us. But when Chris came back, he was really overweight. He was clearly not sober. And you could just tell that he was not in a good place. Right. So it was painful to watch him that week doing the rehearsals because even though he's still hilarious, Chris Farley, you could just see that he wasn't doing well. Right. Physically and otherwise. So as you, I'm sure aware, I wrote his final appearance on SNL ever that I think has become a classic, which is El, El Nino. Nino. I did not know you wrote that. I did. El Nino is Spanish. For? The Nino. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, looking back, I take such pride that I got to write that sketch that was Farley's final SNL camera work. But it's also sad, a reminder of how many years he missed out on just being a brilliant actor, right? Right. He was supposed to play Shrek. I heard that. And you worked with him a year before because he did Spade in America when Black Sheep came out. He did. That's right. Well, what was it like at the 25th anniversary? The 25th was really fun, and it was a really great show. People forgotten that show a bit because the 40th was... is in people's minds. But the 25th was a really funny show. Strangely, even though I was a staff writer then and doing well, they kind of didn't have us do that much. Like a lot of guest writers, Al Franken and Jim Downey, you know, came back and wrote stuff. So I just remember feeling almost like I was a stranger to my own family. I was I was more an observer of that show than a participant. But the show itself was really fun. Yeah, Jim Downey is probably my all-time favorite writer. What, what was he like? Funny guy. Sarcastic. Um, he was obsessive like norm mcdonald had this thing in the 90s it was called a, it was one of those magic johnson nerf basketball games where it had a, a anim, animatronic voice of magic where every time you put the nerf basketball in the hoop it would go it's the ultimate which is just a recording of magic johnson saying it's the ultimate so downey used to enjoy taking the ball and saying Magic Johnson, what is it like to be HIV positive? Shoot the ball. It's the ultimate. Magic, when you have sex with women on the road at NBA games, what's that like? It's the ultimate. So he would, he loved just focusing on a singular joke and milking it over and over. I, I got to go backstage twice to SNL, and he was there, and I asked him for his autograph once, and he went, why? I'm like, because you're Jim Downey? And he's like, okay. Whatever. I could see him doing that. You did a very popular Comedy Central Presents in 1999 that they repeated over and over. And it was like your best material from all your stand-up years. How did, how did you know? Like, you have a lot of good stuff. How do you know what to cut out? I made a calculated decision 
to go with stuff that in case it did get played a lot, which it ended up, as you said, airing a lot that I'd be proud of and wouldn't feel too dated or misrepresenting sort of my current standup. So it was hard to pick. Of course, what you saw, Ian, was the edited version. Right. I did do a, my set taped at the, I think it was the Hudson Hotel in Manhattan. Um, my set was longer, but I was super specific with the producers about what to keep in and what to cut. And they said that was helpful that a lot of stand-ups don't give them any go with what material to go with. But I really, in my mind, knew what I wanted to use. What were some later sketches that you did for SNL, like 98, 99, 2000? Well, the one that I am always have fond memories of is, do you remember, and so this is Hanukkah? Oh, I love that sketch. Which made national news, right? Because yep. it got protested by the Anti-Defamation League for being anti-Semitic, which is hilarious because I'm Jewish and I wrote it. And the whole sketch is about, it's making fun of anti-Semitism. It's not anti-Semitic. Right. But um, Morton Michaels was great. He defended the sketch and said, you know, we're going to air it. We don't care what other people think. But so that was a really fun one. The, um, the sketch was referenced last week when they had they had a little bit of the Orthodox Jewish community got mad because on Weekend Update they did a joke about the three tigers in the zoo who got COVID. And they said, oh, they went to a Hasidic wedding. And... This one group is really angry, and they're like, "Remember this sketch from twenty years ago?" And they actually put it on Facebook. They have really? a there's a history of anti anti-Semitism at Saturday Night Live, and that's the sketch that they used to show it. Unbelievable! The joke that they focused on was Christina Ricci was the guest as host. Britney Spears. She played Britney Spears, so I had her as Britney Spears saying, "Hey y'all, Chanaka is a special time of year." Whereas we as Christians forgive our Jewish friends for killing our savior. Right. That was the joke they went ballistic over. I was lucky enough to have the tape live because they never reran that sketch. They did not. Part of it too was the, um, the clearances. I had all these music parodies in it. Yeah. Living live right? Vita Kosher, I think. Yeah. You had Catan as uh, Ricky Martin. Ricky Martin. That's right. So that was an expensive sketch. Last question on Saturday Night Live. Um, the nine, nine, coming back after 9-11, I had Jeff Richards on, and he was saying that you just sat, you guys just sat down to look at the commercial parodies for that season. That's what you guys were doing. That, I'm sorry, we what did we do? You just sat down to look at the commercial parodies. You were in a room. Oh, when the, when the Twin Towers hit? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right, because it would have been you know, early in September before we were doing shows. Right. So yeah, I, what I remember is there was a rumor that anth well, Anthrax was sent to NBC News. Tom Brokaw. So we had to, yeah. yeah, we had to evacuate. That was kind of scary. Mm. And why did you leave in 2002? I felt ready to move on. You know, seven years is a long time to be there. And I'd already lived in LA before Saturday Night Live. So having some opportunities for jobs sounded appealing. So that was really it. And also the core group of cast that I started with at SNL was all leaving, meaning 
Will Ferrell and I left the same time. Spade had left. Norm McDonald was gone. Cherry O'Terry was gone. Molly Shadow. So Yep, it was starting to feel like a different show. For Tim Meadows. Yes. So my favorite Tim Meadows sketch that I wrote was, and I know you're a baseball fan, so you remember it. It was Tim Meadows hosting Black Perspectives on Jackie Robinson's The Anniversary of Him Breaking the Color Barrier. Right. And he interviewed Tracy Morgan, played by... Jermaine Allensworth. That was such a random... Jermaine Allensworth. Okay. Oh, I'm a I'm a big Pirates fan. Okay. So that's why I picked Jermaine Allensworth. Yeah. Who obviously will be more famous in for being a fictitious character on SNL than being a real baseball player. Right. I loved those perspectives because those perspective sketches because I would fall asleep sometimes, wake up at four o'clock in the a.m. and there would be a show just like that on. Al Franken created the template for perspectives and no other writer besides me had ever written a perspectives. So I had that idea. Franken said, that's hilarious. Do it. And then he read it and thought it was funny and, and punched it up a little bit. But uh, that was really fun to do. Okay. And like when I was a kid, I always, my dream was to be a writer on Saturday Live and write sketch comedy. Um, do, you, do you know any way that you could learn how to teach sketch comedy? It's a great question, Ian. During the pandemic with my downtime from television, I decided the question you asked, I get so often. So I started, I have started my own TV sketch writing courses on Zoom. And I actually have an advanced class and an intro class. So you're getting like hands-on professional advice in a workshop on TV sketch writing. I'm doing two new classes next month in January, 2021. And then I'll be doing more every six or seven weeks. So please, for your fans of your podcast and your comedy people, just go to hufink.com and you can register for the classes. They're small because I want to give individual attention to all the students. Um, But the people who take them say that they're super informative and super fun. That sounds... Sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you. And how are they weekly or is it like a five? five yes, five weeks in a row for two hours at a time. And they started, um, it's basically 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. East Coast time is the time of the classes. Yeah. That's, that's good. And you, you give like an assignment, like write a, um, a political sketch. That's right. For the, um, for the beginning, the intro class, you don't have to write a whole sketch every week. I have you work on smaller assignments, like bring in a premise that's a political satire or a commercial parody, and we work it out. For the advanced class, you're asked to write an entire sketch each week, which I then read over you know, to all the students. I give feedback. They can react. So the advanced one is a little more in writer intensive if you're more experienced. That's interesting. And but it's definitely geared to um, writing for shows like Key and Peel, Chappelle Show, SNL. If you like TV sketches, it's kind of a perfect class to improve your skills or if you don't have them yet, to learn how to do it. Okay. And, but you, but not desk pieces like for like a Letterman or a Ferguson. Right. It's not, I think I would start a different class to teach 
writing for late night television, monologue jokes. This is actually everything that could be sketches, including, um, you know, Andy Samberg type digital shorts. Oh, okay. I want to do viral videos. So that counts as a sketch. But yeah, anything that involves fake commercials, original characters, political satires, game show spoofs and parodies. They haven't had a lot of those on Saturday Night Live. Not at all. But, you know, there's definitely an art and a craft to writing those successfully, which you learn in my courses. Sounds good. The thing you'd love, Ian, I show tons of excerpts from TV shows, including SNL. And it's not, I show them not just because they're entertaining, but as a teaching tool. So we'll, like, we'll analyze the sketch, um, um, Pet Chow, Rat Poison, remember Pet Chow, Rat Poison? We'll look at that sketch and analyze, like, what works about this, what doesn't, why. So you really get into the specifics of the writing of these sketches, which I don't think any other class does. That actually sounds really interesting. And Thank you. Um, if you besides Saturday Night Live, what do you think it was the best sketch show? Key and Peele. Okay. Yeah, I think that they their percentage of successful sketches just very well crafted, well produced, well acted. I was quite impressed with. And were you a fan of SCTV when you were younger? Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Now, truth be told, I didn't discover it till a little later on, but um, I think it was groundbreaking. Obviously, the cast was A-list, and the production quality was great, too. <laughs> so, yeah, I think a lot of SCTV stuff, my all-time favorite is probably Jerry Lewis. It's, it's um, Martin Short is Jerry Lewis, and I also liked them. Um, they combined Merv Griffin and Andy Griffith and did yes. the Andy Griffin show. So it was Merv Griffin Ooh, back in Mayberry. Right. Dave Thomas has a story about that. They wanted him to play Gomer Pyle, but he didn't have a Jim Neighbors impression. So he he did he went on and he did it and it wasn't good and he hated it. And then Rick Moran went, uh, Fred Travelina as Jim Neighbors, ladies and gentlemen. To save him. So far. That's brilliant. I also remember, remember they did the Broadway show um, about um, Vita was hot at the time. Right. So they did it. They did Indira about Indira Gandhi. Yes. With Andrea Martin and is Indira. Andrea Martin. Exactly. Very funny. Who have you worked with that you couldn't believe you got to meet? Like you were so in awe or, or you're not like that. I'm not that way. I'm not that person who gets in awe. There's some though where I am sort of so so flattered to get to do something with them. And then there's other things where I go, how the hell did I end up here? The example of that would be for you know I produced the SP ESPN Awards right. with Lorne Michaels for years. I did a sketch that I wrote with. Dennis Rodman and film critic Gene Siskel. Mm. One of the weirdest combos of talent in my career. And I had to go to Vegas to work with those two knuckleheads. Mm. So that's always a weird one. Oh, another great moment was um, 
I did a corporate sketch with Bill Gates and had to go to Seattle and teach him how to play Austin Powers, mm. wearing an Austin Powers wig. And I, I had to phonetically spell out, so he'd say, yeah, baby, yeah. <clears throat> so he'd do it with a British accent. So that was cool to go, wow, I'm with one of the most important business people in history, and we're doing comedy together. I mean, while you were there, Bill Murray came back to host. Uh, Martin Short was hosted. Robert Downey Jr. And baseball fan, yeah, Derek Jeter. But uh, the sketch where the baseball players came to the young to Chris Kattan's room and were telling them, "You could do it, be it," and it just got like so many pet players. It got repetitive. You must have liked hanging out with all the baseball players. I did well. So, you know, I became friends with David Wells. Okay. And the reason, Ian, is he came that week you're talking about, and he was introduced to me, and he said, wait a minute. Are you the comedian, Hugh Fink? I said, yeah. He said, holy shit. Several years ago, I was in Vegas and went to the Tropicana Hotel to see comedy, and you were headlining. And he said, I was drunk, and you came on stage, and I yelled, you think you stink. And he said, you crucified me. You went after me so hard <laughs> that I was embarrassed and humiliated. And I wanted to punch you. But I, I left the club. I was so mad at you. I can't believe I'm meeting you now. It was just hysterical that obviously I was dealing with the drunken heckler. Right. I didn't know it was baseball player David Wells. He probably wasn't as accomplished then as he had become and nor I wasn't as well known a comedian either. So I love the fact that he remembered me all, all those years. Mm. And then we, we meet on Saturday Night Live. So then he introduced me to David Cohn, who said, oh, you're the guy. He goes, I've heard that story. So you're the guy who humiliated him. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, what was it like working on the Late Late Show with uh, Craig Ferguson? challenging but fun the cool aspect of it was he had inherited all of the writers for craig kilborn most of whom were not the correct writers for him so it was hard i had to come in and basically decide which writers to keep and which ones to replace so i brought in some of my own writer friends who were great i kept some of the ones who were appropriate um the fun part was you know it's five nights a week doing these shows and Craig is a great performer. So it was fun to um, experiment, but I told the writers, they were writing all this sort of hip conceptual stuff. I said, Hey guys, he's Benny Hill. He doesn't want to do hip conceptual. He wants to put on wigs and dress in drag and do crazy accents. And once we figured that out, felt like the show took off. He used to have Betty White on a lot before she had that second rebirth. Were you there when? That's right. Were you there when that? No, I I stayed. I was his head writer for the first six months, but then I left to do the Showbiz Show with David Spade. So Betty White was not a recurring guest so much when I was there. And I'm going to ask you about the Showbiz Show with David Spade. Um, you were going to have a person that was going to come on at the end, like Andy Rooney. And I did. 
Who doubted I you? wanted, yes, and we, we almost booked him, Ian. My idea was to have O.J. Simpson, E.R., Andy Rooney. So he would comment, the joke would be that we would introduce him as, please welcome former Heisman winner and NFL star O.J. Simpson. So there'd be no mention of any nefariousness. And O.J. would come out, he'd see him at a desk, and he would just go, what's the deal with the prices of movie theater popcorn? <laughs> Why is it when I go to the movie theater, they always say, would you like a large for an extra dollar? And I say, if I want a large, I'll tell you I want a large. So he'd be sort of waxing poetic over ridiculous things. Right. It went so far as that OJ called me back. I, I went through his lawyer, Yale Galanter, and Yale thought it was a funny idea. And he said, look, you can pitch OJ. OJ called me. So I spoke to him on the phone. He thought it was funny. He said he would do it. But then when Comedy Central got word, they said, no way. And it's still one of my big regrets, Ian, because I feel like if we had had O.J. Simpson on the showbiz show with David Spade, it would have been the highest rated episode in Comedy Simple's history. We've gone oh, yeah. to the roof. Yeah, that's why I don't, I guess they didn't want to have the criticism, but the ratings would have been better than South Park. Better than South Park. Seriously, they would have been the highest ratings in history. And it's just, it's one of my regrets. And you can play it out. Like, how come they don't tell you the Q-tips don't go in the ears, they go around the ears? Exactly. All those sort of hacky, you know, the Gilligan's Island, why the professor, he was a professor, but he couldn't build a boat to get them off the island? Just have him do the most mundane jokes. Yeah, I think that would have been really funny. Thank you. I'm also not Ron Goldman. I get it, but you know we can't gear comedy no, towards one person. How do but you how do you feel about that? By the way, the very strongly that you know personal tragedy, human tragedy, is not a reason to withhold being funny and using humor. Because if it were, then we'd be censoring so many things. And of course, if I'm the friend or family member, I'm not going to laugh nor would I expect um, anyone in that position to laugh. Right. That's different, though, than censoring a writer and other people who want to do it. Yeah, I mean, when you've had family, family members die, and you've probably, the next day, laughed at something in your life that had to do with them. Absolutely. I feel like, in fairness, I can say, all right, I don't find that joke funny because it hits a nerve with me personally, but that's not going to make me say no one else should have the right to enjoy it. Right? right. That's the difference is I can acknowledge that I don't like it and why I don't like it, but I'm not going to force my opinion on others. Exactly. And that's how I think comedy should be. Right. And so, unfortunately it's coming from both sides now. It is. That's true. I just read Judy Gold's book, which is really good. That's a good one. Um, D.L. Ugly breaks down the news. That's a show that I thought was going to be a hit. It sure seemed that way. We came on the air right before Obama was elected the first time. And uh, my favorite bit from that show, I think it was our premiere episode. Remember there was all the talk about Freddie Mac? 
yes. which is that federal government program. So I had D.L. Hughley say, please join, welcome our special guest, Freddie Mac. And it was Donnell Rawlings from the Chappelle show playing a pimp named Freddie Mac. Right. So D.L. interviewed this pimp personified as Freddie Mac. And man, we got a lot of complaints from CNN viewers who are grossly offended. But there were other people who thought it was brilliant. So, I think going on that network, you, you'd have a problem. But also, it's a welcome relief at the same time. That's right. I think it was just a bad mix, though, because CNN's core audience does not want comedy. They just want, you know, Wolf Blitzer being bland and reporting what's happening. Right. I mean, older audience, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then the parental discretion with Stephanie Wilder Taylor. Wilder, uh-huh. Wilder, sorry. And uh, I should have gotten that from Gene. But um, you did that on the Nick Mom block that was put out. The short-lived Nick Mom block, right, which was Nickelodeon's attempt to have adult programming for moms. So the humor was not for children, right. which got us in trouble because... Nickelodeon made a horrific mistake, which is airing our show during the afternoon in some markets when it was a late night talk show. So the moms were having their little children watching Nickelodeon right. and then cutting to Stephanie Wilder talking about um, using vibrators. And so they started complaining, how dare you air this offensive programming? To our children but of course the show was never meant to air for children it was an adults only show yeah that helped kill nick mom as a network it's weird that they would do that though have have it in place and then put it all over you sure would think so right now they show friends at, after, they, after eight o'clock it's all they do is they show friends no friends oh wow i didn't realize that and so if they put that on in the middle of the day, I'm sure people would complain. That's true. So what are you what are you doing now or what projects had you did you have in the works? Well, as you know, I just put out a uh, hopefully my next viral video. I did a year end review in music um, to the song of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. My version is We Didn't Stop the Virus. Right. It's a three-minute summation of 2020 in lyrics and video imagery. So I hope people will watch that on YouTube. And then um, my old Saturday Night Live pal David Keckner and I, maybe David Keckner from Anchorman, and yeah. he's Todd Packer from The Office. T-Bone. T-Bone. David and I have started a new business venture called Hey Good Meeting. It's really great, Ian. It's for businesses, whether it's law firms, corporations, anyone who's got a business, if they want David Kector to do a live comedy show on Zoom for their entire staff, we take material from your company, meaning all the specifics about the employees. This is Jim. He likes football, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we do sketches live on Zoom starring Kector. And it's really successful. We've already done about um, eight shows, and we're looking to have a big year in 2021. 
So it's a really great way for people during the pandemic and beyond when you want live entertainment for your work staff, instead of having a boring wine tasting or a lecture or something like that, why not have a comedy show that's tailor-made for your company? It's a great idea. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's real. I'm excited about it. And Keckner, of course, is an amazing A-list comedy star. And we do a Todd Packer bit. We do a Champ Kind from Anchorman. Mm -hmm. We incorporate him into it. But the show is anywhere from 10 to 25 minutes. Oh, that's that, that's great. I, I'd love if I can get the New York City Board of Education to do it when we all go back in September. I would love, you should please um, contact me because if they'd be up for it, you know, and we can take taste wise, we'll gear the show for the audience. So if they want a show that's PG, we'll do it PG. If they want it PG 13, but it's a show for um, mostly adults. Although we did a Christmas party for a big um, New York city, wall street firm, and they had their kids, you know, some of them attended the party online. It was fine. Like where we can be, as clean as you need, but um, it's obviously SNL style humor starring David Koechner. Yeah, I always wondered why he left after one, why he was left after one season. Yeah, I mean, he, he and I started together. He only was there one year, but he's had an amazing career since Saturday Night Live. No, I know. Yeah. I yeah. loved when he played Norm Macdonald's brother Gary. It was great. It was and, a very funny bit. And they promoted the fops as like one of the big characters, and then you get rid of one of the fops. I, I never That's understood. right. He and Mark McKinney. And the fops were hilarious. Right. Yeah. There was one other sketch show when I asked you about maybe uh, it always sticks in my head. It was Norm and it was Laura Layton. And she was uh, a psychic. And she knew everything about him, except she mixed up that he would that he was from maybe Toledo, and she said he was from Dayton. And he got angry. And he got angry, and everything else was like, you know, someone's coming to kill you, You're, this this is right, this is right, this is right, this is right, and the Toledo and Dayton was the only thing he didn't believe. That's hilarious. So that was our third episode of, this, of working together, right? That was the 1995. Yeah. And the fact that Laura Layton hosted, like we couldn't get a bigger star than Laura Layton. Most people don't even know who that is. More people know who Lori Laughlin is, the imprisoned Aunt Becky from Full House. Right. And they know who Laura Layton is. And Rancid was the musical guest. But that... Wow. Yeah. Ian, oh my gosh. You know, you can't get more superstars together than Rancid and Laura Layton. That's incredible talent. I mean, I mean, it's, when you had, he had Steve Martin and Blondie, that's nothing. Nothing. And one time they I used to see in my, my stand-up act. I used to go, uh, I was just in Vegas and I saw Susan Anton and Tony Orlando in concert. I don't know, folks. I think that's too much talent on one stage at one time. <laughs> you know, it's kind of sad to admit, but um, a big Tony Orlando fan. There you go. All right. Fair enough. No, it's a funny joke. That but... is exactly but I actually like Tony Orlando. Um, also, Chevy Chase. What was that week really like when he hosted the second time? Bad. It was bad. The first time was was not that bad. When he did, it like... was bad too. Oh yeah. Yeah, I remember it was just 
He wasn't very respectful to the cast. He, um, the sketches fell flat. It was just not a. They bring the guy who just won, who wants to be a millionaire to do something, to do the uh, cold open. He, he was with Clinton, with Daryl. Wow, that's inc- that. You know, I had forgotten that. I certainly remember when we had on um, Richard Jewell. Yes, on the Sylvester Stallone. I think the Sylvester Stallone opening one. And I wrote that monologue for Stallone. Remember when when uh, no. Burgess Meredith came uh, to haunt Burgess him, Meredith. his the ghost of Burgess Meredith. You're bombing, kid. He told him that he was failing his his monologue. There was one sketch that got cut off on that episode, and it was um, Will Ferrell at the end. It was Will Ferrell sing songs for other dead people because he just did the Princess Diana. Uh huh. And he was the first song he did was uh, to the you um, the Daniel you know the Daniel I'm not Daniel, but it was to Jimmy Stewart because he John because he just died. Jimmy Stewart just died, so he did that. You played George Bailey in that movie about George, right? So, and then he cut the commercial because they were running late, and we ne- I never got we never got to hear the rest of the sketch. That's really weird. Yeah, that was always a timing thing. Sometimes they'd throw a sketch on to fill time, but then they would just cut it short. Yeah, I was wondering. I wanted to find out who wrote that sketch to so ask him how did the rest of the sketch go. That's a great question. I think I'm not sure who wrote that. Will probably helped write it, but with someone else. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming on and talking to me. Yeah, it's this is a highlight. I appreciate you knowing um, my career so well and being a fan of everything. And um, again, if your comedy compadres want to learn about TV sketch writing, please sign up for my class at hughfink.com. Okay. I wouldn't have you on if I wasn't a fan, though. So that's why I know a lot about you. I appreciate it. All that's right. Great. Thank you very much. Hey, take care. You too.